patrons, and welcome to the alternate timeline. Uh, today, we are talking about the flash forward episode, Home Sweet Home, along with a few other odds and ends. So let's start with that episode. Before I get into it, I will apologize if there is uh, some sound in the background. There is some construction happening next door, and I was sort of waiting for them to be done. But then I was like, I just got to get this done. So um, if you hear any sort of like sawing or air compressor type situations, that is what that is. So we're just going to, we're going to get through it together. Um, This week's episode, Home Sweet Home of Flash Forward was obviously all about housing. Um, And before we get into the stuff that I cut or decided not to get into on the episode, I will say that if you are someone who pays very close attention to the time that Flash Forward comes out. You may have noticed that this episode went up a little bit later than it usually does. Normally they come up or they go out really early in the morning on Tuesdays, Um, but this one came out on Tuesday afternoon. Um, There are a couple of reasons for that. One is that I was up in Portland for a little bit dealing with some family stuff, and so the interviews for this episode happened later than I had hoped. And then the kind of other thing, the other big thing that delayed the episode is that I really wanted to um, try and get either sort of a formerly or currently unhoused person to talk a little bit about these policies and projects on the show. Um, You know, as you all know, I try to really include the voices of people who are going to be impacted by this future most directly on the show itself. And with this topic in particular, you kind of don't really hear enough voices from the folks who are currently living without permanent housing. So I really wanted to get somebody on the show. Um... But because of that surprise family trip that I mentioned and because of scheduling, it just sort of didn't happen. And I was hoping that I could like squeak an interview in on like Tuesday morning or something, but that didn't end up happening. So um, that's partially why the episode was delayed. So because I didn't have someone like that on the show, I do want to encourage you to check out a couple of podcasts and publications that are run by and include the voices of unhoused folks. So I'm going to link to all of these in the show notes, but there are a couple that I'll just sort of shout out by name. Um, One of them is called Picture the Homeless, which is a New York City organization that's run sort of by and for homeless folks. And one of their big goals actually is to get um, homeless people in like interviews, be interviewed by journalists like me. Um, The other, another one is the National Coalition for the Homeless, which is a sort of similar organization that's based in DC. There's also something called Street Sheet, which is a publication that is by and for unhoused people that is definitely worth checking out. Um, if you want podcast, there is a podcast called We the Unhoused, which is a project of Streetwatch LA, and the host of that podcast is currently unhoused. And you can also check out Street Spirit, which is another publication that is by and for unhoused folks. Um, a couple of other projects and publications and, and podcasts to listen to that are not run by unhoused people, but do sort of feature them. Um, there's a podcast called Outsiders, which is based in Seattle. And then actually 99% Invisible, which you probably know about because it's a relatively famous podcast. They have an upcoming series by Katie Mingle that's all about unhoused folks in the Bay Area and sort of housing policy and how things got to be the way they are. So definitely check that out when it comes out. It's coming out soon, I think this coming week, but I'd have to check. Um, but you can definitely check that out in the 99PI feed. So again, I'll link to all that stuff in the notes for this episode. Please do go check out those publications and those people. Um, And I'm kind of bummed I couldn't get somebody on the episode, but sometimes that is how it goes. Okay, now a couple of things that I either cut from the episode or decided just not to get into in the first place. 
The first and the kind of main one is the ways in which the coronavirus pandemic has intersected with housing and the lives of those who currently don't have housing. Obviously, you know, people who don't have stable housing have a really hard time social distancing um, or accessing cleaning supplies, hand sanitizer, or in a lot of cases, even just water to be able to wash their hands. Um, Often informal settlements are really crowded. And of course, as we talked about in the episode, many of these folks have no access to medical care except for the emergency room. Um, Shelters even are similarly kind of troublesome. It's really hard to stay distanced from folks when you live in a really small communal building or a kind of cramped shelter often. Um, So when coronavirus started sort of sweeping through the United States, A lot of cities realized that in order to keep there from being sort of totally unmitigated outbreaks of the virus among these communities, they had to do something. They had to do something different than what they were doing. And a lot of cities actually did. And so here is um, Dr. Sam Simbaris from the episode talking about this. That's been the most amazing thing to me about COVID. Here comes this little virus that's threatening all of us, including people who are homeless, Well, we can't have everybody getting very sick because there won't be any emergency room beds or respirators. We've got to take care of everybody, including the homeless. Now there's hotel rooms that are vacant. So, oh, here we go and kill two birds with one stone. We can we can shore up the hotel industry while business is bad and we can house the people who are homeless in the hotels. Forget about housing ready. Everyone's now suddenly housing ready because there's, you know, COVID threatening. So. Housing first seems okay when there's COVID around, you know. 15,000 hotel rooms available in California alone, you know, and that's the thing going on all over the country with, with this. In L.A., they started something called Project Room Key, which, like you heard about in New York, matched up high-risk unhoused folks with empty hotel rooms. Now, not everybody can take advantage of this right now. Project Room Key only accepts applications from folks who are either over 65 and or have an underlying medical condition or are medically compromised, people who would have a really hard time if they did catch coronavirus. But that's still sort of a start, and they've been able to sort of put people into these empty hotel rooms. Um Obviously, you know, these projects haven't been 100% successful. It hasn't been sort of this 100% smooth transition. You know, not all hotels are open to this kind of project. And often these rooms kind of don't come with the services that people need to stabilize. The way that we talked about at Plymouth or at um, Pathways to Housing, you know, people come into housing and then get all these wraparound services. In some of these projects like Project Room Key, they're not always getting that full suite of services. But, you know, I think that the point here is that you know, especially during a pandemic, uh, they're better than the alternative. And in LA, they are considering extending Project Room Key beyond the pandemic. But the thing that I kind of want to highlight is that when there is this sudden risk and sudden thing like COVID, people's willingness to find homes and repurpose spaces changes a little. They're a little bit more open to it the way that kind of Sam described. Um, You could be cynical and say that this only happened because, you know, people in charge were afraid that unhoused folks might affect housed people. Um, But either way, it kind of shows you that a lot can be done if we have the will to do it um, and that there are maybe more options than people tend to want to accept. Um, So that's one thing. The other thing that I didn't get into on this episode is a little bit more about the economics of how a homes guarantee might happen. Um, This came up in the jobs guarantee episode as well, this question of how do we pay for something like this? So in the episode, I talked about taxes on the wealthy as one way to pay for stuff like this, something the way that like Vienna did it. 
Um, but there is also another piece to the economics here that I didn't talk as much about, um, which is that the U.S. government prints its own money. And some economists argue that the government can and should just like print money to buy things that are good for the nation. Um, this idea kind of falls under something called modern monetary theory, modern monetary theory, MMT. Um, if you want to look it up and read more about it, I will link to some stuff about it in the show notes um, for this episode. But basically the gist is that governments like the U.S. are not actually constrained by finances. The U.S. government is not a household and does not have to manage its money like a household. It's also not a business and does not have to manage its money like a business. The U.S. government is an entirely different entity. It's a totally different thing. And if the government thinks that it would be good to buy something, they can and simply should print the money to do so. Okay, now you might be thinking, wait a minute. Doesn't that just lead to inflation, right? Isn't that what I learned in high school? You can look at examples like Venezuela and Zimbabwe, and you learn that, like, if you just start printing a bunch of money, you will get runaway inflation, and it will totally destroy the economy. Um, I remember learning that in high school. You probably learned that in high school or college or somewhere along the way. Um, but economists who subscribe to modern monetary theory say that that's actually not quite right. So there are some cases in which that has happened, but um, the story with Zimbabwe and Venezuela is actually a lot more complicated than the version of it I just told you, which is that they just printed a bunch of money and then inflation kind of like ran away. Um, there's a lot more history there. And what they argue is that inflation happens when money goes to the private sector, which creates bidding wars, which drives up the prices, and then the government prints money, and then it becomes a sort of reinforcing situation. But if the money goes to the public sector to fund public services, inflation does not necessarily, you know, go up like that or run away like that. Um, and so they argue that you we should, you know, print money for things like public housing. And in fact, the U.S. did something like this this summer. Um, the U.S. created over $3 billion to inject into the commercial banking system to try and save the economy during the COVID crisis. Now, I am not an expert or an economist on this, which is part of the reason I didn't get into this in detail on the episode. But I will link to a bunch of stuff that you can read about it in the notes to find some more readings about this. Um, and I think that it's really interesting. And maybe on a future episode, we'll talk a little bit more about it. And the reason that um, I want to bring it up here and the reason that a couple people actually messaged me and said, like, they wished I had talked about it on this episode is that some people... Um, you know, really focus on this method of paying for something like social housing, the printing of money from the government, um, for two kind of reasons. And they're kind of both practical and philosophical. So when you say, let's tax rich people to have nice things, um, like public housing, it implies that until rich people are taxed, we cannot have these things. And that's not true. We can, in fact, have these things that we want and we need before and without even taxing rich people. We could generate the money to purchase them. Now, we should also tax rich people, for sure, but not just because we want or need money to fund important things. Um, so proponents of printing money for this stuff argue that if we focus too much on taxing the rich, we sort of shift the focus to a political goal that actually requires a lot more work and organizing in the sort of political public sphere because rich people have so much clout in the United States. Um, it's really hard to get taxes on the rich, even though the vast majority of people are in favor of them, um, because the rich people in the United States are super powerful. They're lobbyists. They buy, you know, they fund campaigns. They have super PACs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and, you know, the argument is that we should not have to wait for taxes on the rich to happen before we can have better public housing or transportation or any of the things that would make everybody's lives better. We should just print the money and make it happen. Um, 
And so that is one of the economic things I just didn't get into in the episode. Um, Again, I'll link to some readings on that in the notes for this podcast um, in case you're interested in that stuff. Okay, that is all for the Home Sweet Home episode. Um, A couple of other odds and ends to say... Uh, This past week was Thanksgiving in the United States, um, which is a good time to really think about the land that you are on and maybe seek out a land back project to donate to if you have not already. Um, Thanksgiving is an incredibly violent holiday. It is not that nice coming together story that you probably learned as a kid. Um, It involves a lot of genocide. Uh, And so I hope that if you did not already look up some places to give your time or money or skills to, um, you maybe will do that now on the back of this sort of holiday in the U.S. Um, That also brings me to something that I actually forgot to talk about two weeks ago on the Land Back bonus episode um, that I wanted to bring up this week, which is land acknowledgements. So if you live in Canada or Australia, you've probably heard these before. Um, They're becoming increasingly more common in the U.S. as as well. Um, And land acknowledgements are basically statements that are often read before an event, like a conference or a talk or something, and they acknowledge the land that um, you're gathered on. So they'll sound something like, you know, before we begin, I want to acknowledge the land we are on today as the traditional territory of, you know, blank and blank tribal nations. Sometimes they mention the treaty signed in some year. Um, They'll often say things like, we also acknowledge the tribal governments and their roles today in taking care of these lands. You know, there's sort of, you've heard, if you've heard this, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and land acknowledgements are fine. They're not bad necessarily, but everybody that I talked to for that episode, for the land back episode, specifically noted that if all you do is like do a Google five minutes before and acknowledge the land you're on, you're really like not doing enough. Standing up there and being like, Yes, we know we are on stolen land of people who are to this day marginalized and oppressed. Okay, let's get on with the program is not particularly helpful. Um, These statements should come with some kind of action, something like donating some percent of the proceeds of the event to the local nation or speaking to the ways that your organization or your company or your university is doing something specific, some action, some specific action to help right these wrongs and support the indigenous people in your area. Um, You can't just say like, oh yeah, we know this is a thing and move move along with your day. or at least you shouldn't. You can. Many people do. Um, so I'm going to link to a couple of best practices guides on the land acknowledgement thing in the notes for this episode in case you are a person who is in a position to be delivering or working on those kinds of things. Um, but yeah, I think next time you hear one of those, maybe ask like, okay, but what are you doing? Like what is what goes along with the acknowledgement if they don't say it in the actual acknowledgement itself? Um Okay, I think that is everything on the flash forward front. There are three episodes to go, and then we have our usual break for January, February, March. Um, And during that time, Julia and I will be working on getting the next season together and trying to get ahead. Um, And that's that for flash forward. Um, On the advice for and from the future front, I am working on some some new episodes. You will get a couple new episodes before the year is out. Um, And then I am evaluating how to proceed with that show for next year. I have some ideas and um, I'm working on it, but it'll just be, you'll get a couple and they're going to be kind of like randomly dropped. So I know that they used to be every other Tuesday, sort of alternating with flash forward. Um, 
the the next couple are just going to kind of come out like surprise times <laughs> so because I, I'm not sure when they'll be done and I just want to get them out for you. So um, that will happen at some point and you'll hear them then. <laughs> um, okay, now on to the four big things that we always talk about on these dispatches. Number one, a story that I'm tracking. So you heard me talk a couple of weeks ago about California's Proposition 22, which was this very bad and dangerous uh, proposed change to the rules about workers' rights here in California, where I live. Um, The Yes on 22 folks spent over $200 million on their ad campaign. Their ads were incredibly misleading. They also sort of forced drivers and workers into promoting the campaign, even if they didn't want to. Um, There's some incredible stories about how like if you're driving Uber, you have to like before you accept a new ride to pick up, you have to say like yes on 22, Um, which is bad. Um, But, you know, when you spend $200 million and put out a bunch of incredibly misleading ads, you will often convince people to vote for the thing. And so um, Californians passed Prop 22 which is bad. It's also interesting to note that if you look at the voter outcomes in different places in California, the Bay Area overwhelmingly voted no because they kind of like know about these tech companies and the tricks that they pull, whereas the rest of the US or the rest of California voted yes. So it's sort of an interesting map if you look at that map. Um, But yeah, so 22 passed, which is bad. It's bad for California. It's bad for workers in California. But it's not just about workers in California. It's also about precedent. Um, when I talked about this last time, I talked about how if California if California passes Prop 22, these companies will likely then try to use the same kind of tactics elsewhere. Um, and that is exactly what they're doing. So there was recently a story in CNET where they talked to Uber, Lyft, Instacart, DoorDash, all these companies, and they all confirmed that they are planning to bring the Proposition 22 model nationwide, um, lobby the federal government, lobby various state governments, um, and try to use this as a model, basically. Um, and what that means is that tech companies are going to try and write their own labor laws across the country. And that's a bad thing, right? It's not rocket science to see why that's a bad thing. Um Apparently, it was worth $200 million to them to make sure that they could control the rights of workers, including, you know, ability to negotiate hours, benefits, wages, overtime, disability, all of that stuff. It's bad. Um, It's not necessarily a a closed deal, a sealed deal. Um, There are some possible pathways to both challenging Prop 22 and also trying to make sure that they can't do this nationwide. Um, There are some antitrust pathways to potentially use. Um, There's also sort of places where, um, you know, workers are organizing against it. So we can kind of, you know, I think there are still things to be doing, but um, it's not good. The passage of Prop 22 is bad. And actually, a lot of the props in California this year went, um, in my opinion, the wrong way. And I think there's a really big conversation to be had about uh, the proposition system and how it's working or not working, particularly when, you know, like you can have something like Prop 22 where a bunch of really powerful and wealthy companies simply propose a law that allows them to do whatever they want and include in the proposal that they have to have a seven-eighths majority to change any of the rules that they've proposed and have that pass because they spent so much money on an ad campaign. It just feels like this is like a broken system, right? Um, And so I think that there are um, things that we can do. Biden has already kind of um, suggested that he may 
be be willing to push against things like Prop 22. He and Kamala Harris both um, came out against 22 specifically. So they know about it and they know that it's bad. But the question is like what exactly they're going to do or be willing to do. So we'll see. And I will keep an eye on it. Um, and I will let you know what I, uh, what I hear and what I'm researching. So that's the thing I'm watching. Um, not very fun, not a good one. Um, a book I'm reading is I'm finishing up Flowers of Mold, which, um, is by, uh, Ha Seung Nan. I'm finishing up Flowers of Mold, which is the book club book. It's a short story collection. Um, so if you are reading that with us, uh, head on over to the Slack and um, we'll be discussing there. Um, I'm going to drop in some questions soon so, so we can actually have a conversation um, and kind of get it get that started. Um, okay, number three, a writing prompt on the theme of homes and housing, for, because that is the flash forward theme this week. Um, I would like for you to imagine the house, the home, the apartment, whatever it is, wherever you are living right now, I would like for you to imagine it 100 years ago. Like, did it exist? What did it look like? If there wasn't a structure there, what was there before? Do you know? Could you find out? How could you find out? Um, same question, but 10 years ago. And then I want you to think, okay, what happens? And what do you imagine this place being 10 years from now? And then 100 years from now. Okay, and then as always at the end, a little secret. Um... I have recently gotten into houseplants. I know I'm like 900 years behind. I know houseplants got trendy like years ago. Um, I mean, they were always popular. People like houseplants. But I feel like there was an era or like a rise of Instagram houseplant stuff. And so anyway, I got some houseplants finally. And I've gotten into them. And the other day I was at the salvage yard near my house, which I like to go to because it's full of weird stuff for me to buy. Um, to do art projects with. And I found a humidifier. And so I bought my plants a humidifier. Not for me, for the plants, because they want it to be a little more humid than it is here in California. So um, I hope they're going to be happier now. <laughs> okay, that's all for this week. I will talk to you all again soon. Bye. Okay, and then as always at the end, a little secret. Um, I have recently gotten into houseplants. I know I'm like 900 years behind. I know houseplants got trendy like years ago. Um, I mean, they were always popular. People like houseplants. But I feel like there was an era or like a rise of Instagram houseplant stuff. And so anyway, I got some houseplants finally. And I've gotten into them. And the other day I was at the salvage yard near my house, which I like to go to because it's full of weird stuff for me to buy. Um, to do art projects with. And I found a humidifier. And so I bought my plants a humidifier. Not for me, for the plants, because they want it to be a little more humid than it is here in California. So um, I hope they're going to be happier now. <laughs> okay, that's all for this week. I will talk to you all again soon. Bye.